Um, Donald Trump was kind of late to the party, but you know, Donald Trump now claims credit for Ron DeSantis because he endorsed him when he ran for governor. What's the truth there? Well, you know, I think you 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 said it perfectly there that you know when Ron ran for Congress, he he was having these fights about you know the debt ceiling and national security when I'm not even sure if Donald Trump was a Republican yet. Hey, it's Johanna, and in this episode of Press Advance, we are talking about Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. He is now a best-selling author, which is traditionally an important qualification to run for president. And it is an important qualification that he shares with my former boss, Barack Obama. Ron DeSantis was early on the scene in the Tea Party movement. He was standing against President Obama. He wrote a book called Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, First Principles in the Age of Obama. He was elected to Congress with a slate of Tea Party members. And though he ran for Congress before Donald Trump even emerged on the political scene, the former president now claims credit for his victory as governor because he was an early supporter of DeSantis in that gubernatorial run. DeSantis has a lot to run on. He has kept the state of Florida more open than most during the COVID-19 pandemic. He has an economic record that has proven formidable, but he is also taking on the most divisive social issues of our time, signing a six-week abortion ban under the cover of darkness and supporting the legislators' efforts in a new law that will allow anyone to conceal and carry a gun almost anywhere with an important caveat, not the Florida state capitol. (laughs) Always interesting to me. But he has gotten into some back and forth, even with the people in his own party, after he targeted Disney for speaking its mind on legislation pending in Florida. I do find Ron DeSantis very interesting. He was raised in a moderate income family. His mother was a nurse. He played baseball and went to Yale and Harvard Law. He served as a JAG officer in the U.S. Navy, also serving in Iraq and Guantanamo. In this episode, we talked to Kristen Davidson, who is Chief Operating Officer for the pro-DeSantis PAC, Never Back Down. Kristen has a record of winning. She's worked with Karl Rove, Glenn Yonkin, among others. Stay tuned after because I dive deeper into the governor's record with Alex Eisenstadt from Politico, who covers the governor. Political action committees are independent from the candidate, but they can be substantial influences in elections. So I first had to ask Kristen what they're building. Well, you know, Never Back Down is a, a grassroots movement. It was launched, I think, in March. Um, our founder, Ken Cuccinelli, started, you know, really just taking the enthusiasm that was happening on the ground um, on its own and, and really channeling that behind Ron DeSantis, encouraging him to run. Um, and as you look at and, and talk to voters, especially, you know, in the, the early states, talk to what they want. Everyone knows who Ron DeSantis is. Ron DeSantis is probably the most popular elected Republican in the country right now. Um, and he's, you know, right now the only one that can make a run for the nomination. If you look at any of the numbers, it, it shows that. But they they like him and they know him because of what he's done. They 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 love what he's done for Florida and they they like him because he has never backed down, hence our name. Um, and so when people say things can't be done, so during COVID and during his fights with Disney, um, DeSantis has never been the type of leader that accepts that and has always stood up for the people he represents. And th- that is why he's popular across the country. But what people don't know are 
you know, they don't know his personal story. They don't know that he has blue collar roots in Ohio and Pennsylvania. They don't know that he, you know, worked his way to college. Um, you know, you've read his book, so you know the story of how he showed up um, at Yale and jean cutoffs and, and flip flops and, and, you know, made his way through there. And then instead of going to a fancy law firm after he uh, joined the military and they don't know, you know, that he has three beautiful children, his wife, Casey, all of these different things. Once they learn even more about him and who he is and his story, more people join the effort on, on top of that. So we're really excited because not only is DeSantis um, the future of the party here and the future of, of fighting for uh, American families, um, there's still so much of a story to tell. And so we view our job right now and making sure that that story is being told. You know, I look at the first book he wrote was, he was really at the dawn of the Tea Party movement. You know, he was really talking about like the founders and his firm belief of what the founders envisioned for America. And in many ways, you know, him, uh, even, even Nikki Haley, some of them, they were actually in this fight before Donald Trump was. Um, Donald Trump was kind of late to the party, but, you know, Donald Trump now claims credit for Ron DeSantis because he endorsed him when he ran for governor. What's the truth there? Because I think you hit on somebody who's probably pretty important, which is his wife, Casey DeSantis, has been one of his huge supporters of him getting into the political arena. Well, you know, I think you you, you said it perfectly there that, you know, when Ron ran for Congress, he he was having these fights about you know, the debt ceiling and national security when I'm not even sure if Donald Trump was a Republican yet. <laughs> so yeah, he's I been having he these fights. <laughs> exactly. And standing up to the establishment, I mean, anyone who has watched Ron DeSantis' career knows that he has been, to your point, he's, he's part of the Tea Party, also started the Freedom Caucus, has been at the forefront of speaking truth to power. And if you remember, you know, Donald Trump said he was going to take on the swamp and he really didn't. You know, he really became a creature of the swamp. Ron DeSantis never did. And COVID is a great example. You know, Ron, Governor Ron DeSantis looked at the science, looked at the data and said, we're not going to do that here. We're not just going to fall in line. And that that I think is um, why right now, going back to just the governor's record, um, why so many people are encouraging him to run, because throughout his entire career, he has been someone that is always fought for what the right thing to do was, regardless of what um, the bigger forces were doing. And that, that, I think, is a big difference between Governor Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. And so as we, you know, enter the the 2024 um, election, when, and you look at the, the different people who are throwing their hat in the ring, no one has the record of standing up for conservative principles the way that um, Governor Ron DeSantis and uh, his career has done. Well, and he really does call into question some of like even previous Republican theories. I mean, in some cases, he's taking on fights even with Congress, which, of course, you know, Donald Trump started doing, I guess, to some extent when he was talking about term limits. But that's something that. DeSantis actually was pretty firm on, you know, trying to say, like, this isn't a job for in perpetuity. You should not be getting a pension to be a representative. You should go do your service and leave. Um, <laughs> to your point, you know, that is uh, different than a lot of uh, traditional Republicans and a lot of traditional Democrats <laughs> who see this as a long term career. 
do you think though, like no matter what happens in this election, obviously he, you know, sees a path forward for himself, but in service, I mean, this moment might call him, but it's going to require a lot to go against an oxygen machine like Donald Trump. Do you think he's ready for it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there was just an article today, might've been in the Hill that said, don't underestimate Ron DeSantis. And I think that that is a, a good sentiment for everyone to remember as, you know, even just looking through the governor's career, you know, when he ran for Congress, people underestimated him and he won. Frankly, when he launched his campaign for governor in, in 2018, he went up against the establishment favorite that, you know, outspent him 10 to 1. Um, and he, he is always able to, you know, I think his principles and his record of, of fighting has always won out um, in, in those battles. Now, looking to 24, what we're seeing, especially on the ground in these early states, you know, you have the, the, the headlines in D.C., which are frankly a little detached from reality when you talk to people on the ground. You know, there are people who think that Donald Trump was the best president of their lifetime. They still like the former president. They still believe in what he did. And to his credit, in, in 2016, he really spoke to a segment of the electorate that felt that they were being forgotten. And so they there are there is a lot of the population that likes the the former president. They just believe his time has passed. They they want someone that's going to take us to the future. That's going to keep this movement going. That's going to fight and not back down when they really uh, are up against the establishment in D.C. and elsewhere. And they see when they see Ron DeSantis as the alternative, they want it. They want to join that movement, and that that's what Never Back Down really is: is is channeling all of these individuals across the country who see Ron DeSantis as the future of this movement, as the future of this party. Because even though they may like the former president, they do believe his time has passed, and frankly. His winning record has not been all that great, whereas Ron DeSantis has never lost an election. It is interesting, though, because, of course, um, I think we were in a better position because President Obama had lost a congressional bid because it, you know, you learn from losses, too. So it'll be interesting. And uh, certainly he's got to get the right people around him. One thing I find, you know, in talking to Democrats, there is fear of Ron DeSantis. And the fear comes from probably, you know, he wrote the book um, originally when President Obama had emerged on the scene, um, you know, that was really challenging President Obama in a way that, you know, to some was condescending, uh, they felt like, because President Obama was a constitutional law professor, and he believes he very much reads the texts of founders and the like. And DeSantis's book was really going into, you know, Obama doesn't understand he's trying to push us to a country that wasn't the ideals of the founders. And and I, I think it's so funny to read both of their books. And I I, I, part of me, Kristen, I want for someday there to be a beer summit with Ron DeSantis and Barack Obama, because honestly, they have more in common than, than they think. But there is like, there's a, there's a worry and a skepticism of Democrats that I don't know that he can be a little condescending of people who have different views. Should we worry about that? 
I don't, I don't think so. I think that, you know, just look at the governor's record in Florida. Um, Florida was not a red state when he ran for governor and, and when he first took office. And I think through his work of, ex, you know, explaining what he wanted to do, what was best for the state, won over independents and Democrats. I mean, he won, you know, Miami-Dade County, which in this election, which hadn't been done in about 40 years for a Republican. And so it's not like all of a sudden a bunch of Republicans just moved to Miami-Dade. Um, it was it was converting people uh, to this belief. And I do think it's because, you know, in, in some instances, and in that election in 2022, it was Charlie Chris. So, you know, they probably went too far on, on, on the, the Democrat side. And when you look at Obama, I mean, if you remember the Obama years, um, I think it's funny that he might think that someone was being condescending to him. Cause I think a lot of us on the Republican side thought that Obama was pretty condescending to us all the time. Um, and, you know, I think you can, it's, it's two Democrats and Republicans have two different governing philosophies and it, it really, you know, not to oversimplify it, but, but to sum it up, it's, it's how, how much do you want the government involved in your life? And we see that playing now out on the national level, really with parents and with schools. Um, that argument, it's very, it's been very interesting to watch because it's not just a constitutional argument. It's now in our education space, which frankly on the federal level doesn't really, you know, rise to the top as an issue. But now you have Republicans and Democrats who are fighting over who should have the mo- the best seat at the table for a child talking about their education. So it's just interesting how that, you know, philosophy, how those philosophies have evolved over time. Um, but, but I would, I would probably push back a little bit just because on the flip side of that, I remember from 2009 until he, he left office, uh, you know, then president Obama seemed, you know, like the smartest person in the room all the time. So I, I, I don't think it's a condescending thing, but I do think it's a, you know, a, standing for your principles and your philosophy and what you believe in. If you are as principled on the other side, sometimes you don't, you know, think that you can ever find middle ground. I do think DeSantis has shown that he's able to do that just by how he's been able to um, transform the state of Florida. In transforming the state of Florida, he's really um, made Republican majorities such that they were able to pass pretty expansive gun law such that you can carry a gun and have a gun without permits um, pretty much everywhere, except for the state house. Can't carry it there, (laughs) which I think some people like said, hello, if you're going to carry it anywhere, why can't you carry it around the governor (laughs) and everybody else? Um, But also, you know, like the six week abortion ban, which, you know, has always been, I think, a real struggle because, a six-week ban on abortion um, is before a lot of people would even know they're pregnant. I think a lot of people, my parents gave up a child for adoption when they were in high school, and they were, though very conservative, um, pro-choice because they just didn't think anybody else needed to have a seat at that table when they were making the most pivotal decision of their lives. Um, how do you think he's going to square that? And do you think that there's any room for him to find moderation in a general election on some of those issues that are really pivotal to a lot of voters? Sure. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm on the super PAC, so I'm not going to speak for the governor's policies and especially ones he hasn't, you know, weighed in on. But I think that, um, you know, looking at the issue itself, you know, where, where the especially the media takes this is, is really focused on the weeks 
And I think you find most polling that in purple states and national with independents and, and moderate Democrats, um, the average you know, week where, where it's probably a 60% agreement is on 15 weeks. And when you ask voters um, if abortion should be limited at the time when a, an unborn child can feel pain, most voters agree with that. And that's six weeks. And so I think that the way that this um, debate, um, while it's, it's, you know, highly um, emotional and personal and, you know, religious for a lot of people, um, needs to, to be an approach from, from, from that standpoint is, is we're not, you know, when we're fighting about weeks, that's, you know, one argument, I think um, a number of people would say that it, it's, the argument is bigger than just that. It's that w- where we do find agreement, uh, most of the country right now, I think, agrees that abortion after 15 weeks uh, should be um, banned with exceptions. And I think when you explain that, do you believe that abortion should be out, out outlawed at, when a child can feel pain? Most voters, um, not just Republican, not just conservative, but but independents and moderate Democrats, agree that that should be the case with exceptions. And so we'll see how this debate plays out. Um, now, I think the other part that, that usually gets left on the cutting room floor of most of these stories and, and coverage is that Democrats have taken this way too far in the other direction. I mean, just in Virginia, I want to say five years ago, they were having the argument of whether a child should be aborted after it's born. And I think then the governor Northam of Virginia said, make sure the child feels comfortable. I mean, this is where this debate has gone. We went from talking about, frankly, infanticide to now um, reaching agreement and consensus on when we believe holistically as a country uh, abortion goes too far. And so that's the debate you're going to see play out. I think that there is. I think the media wants to and, and frankly, Democrats want to say that we can't touch this issue. But I think you'll find that there, there is more agreement on um this issue then is usually reported. And that's that's just looking not not just in conservative states, but nationwide. I'm hearing that same argument from some of my other Republican friends. And it certainly seems like that's what, you know, Republicans intend to stand up. The thing about Roe v. Wade is it wasn't that people had access to abortion until the very end of the term, and every state had different regulations. And as some would argue that it's very difficult because you have government involved in maybe a life or death situation where you're trying to decide whether to save the life of the mother or the life of the fetus, which is, you know, complication. Um, But I think what the Democrats are going to end up, um, you know, talking about is Roe v. Wade. When they say they're for Roe v. Wade, it was until viability, which is when a fetus can survive on its own between 24 and and 28 weeks. And I think you're right. Like there are always crazy people who say crazy things on any side of the political spectrum. Well, this wasn't a crazy person. This was the old governor of Virginia. You know, this was the Democrat governor of Virginia who said that. We have the state of Florida banning abortion, like at, at the point where you don't even know you're pregnant. So, you know, there there is, it's like people take things so far and the vast majority of where you are in the middle gets lost. Yeah, I mean, there are other states that banned outright. Kentucky abortion's illegal. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. 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 No, I think, I think that, that it, it's a matter of framing. It's not the extreme case on the flip side, you know, a, a large 
uh, portion of the country believes that that is a life. And when that life feels pain, that is an atrocious, um, uh, you know, circumstance. And so when, when we're talking about, you know, how do you, you know, Democrats can say, well, this is crazy. I don't know when I'm pregnant at six weeks. Okay. That's, that's one part, but, but also the other, the other side of it is, well, I believe that that's a life and that life can feel pain at six weeks. So are we going to play God here and, 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 um, move to, to abort that, that child. So you have to understand that this is not just as easy as to say, this is pro Roe v. Wade or not Roe v. Wade. And this is six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks or two weeks. It's not that simple. It's supporting women who are having babies. I mean, that's the thing is like, they, you know, like part of the, what, what the governor did was, was, um, there was a huge push to, to provide support along, along with everyone focused on the six week bill, but the governor did a lot of other things for foster care and for um, new mothers to make sure they have the resources. And that's what I think you see in this debate. And it's been that way since I'm 18 years old. You know, it's, it's not, you know, the far left wants us as women to believe that there's only one choice. They say we want, we want women to have choices. We want women to have choice and the ability to have an abortion. We shouldn't make that choice for them. They never talk about choosing life. They never, ever ever talk about choosing life. I challenge that. I I would challenge that. I think it's, and I think we could have a whole conversation on abortion. The biggest problem with our politics right now is there's no room for moderation. And the majority of Americans want things that are going to work for everyone. So I guess that's the question. And I guess you're saying that you do think that DeSantis has already found some moderation in six weeks instead of an all right ban. We'll see whether that's popular. I'm watching from afar. I'm seeing what the, what the governor has done. He's done it with a majority support of his constituents. And that's what you've also seen in places like name your state. Um, you could say the same thing for the extreme left policies um, of Illinois and California. I mean, the, the liberal mayor of Chicago was running a, a race saying that they wanted, you know, she wanted it to be the abortion haven of the country. I mean, in, in the 2021 race in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe was running a campaign saying he wanted businesses to move to Virginia for more abortion access. Well, I'm sorry, but abortion is not an economic development plan. It's we're talking about well, lives some and people, health. some people are desperate and they do, they, they don't believe that they can carry that life. And it is. That's right. That's why we have to have programs in place and information in place to, to those mothers. I, I, imagine that there are definitely some um, organizations that have uh, places for women to come to get an abortion. I don't know if they offer them the number for an adoption agency or foster care or tell them that there's another option. I hope they do, but I I can't imagine that they do. And then I can tell you, you know, my mom having given up a child for adoption would regret it for the rest of her life that she didn't get to raise that child. It is just such a personal conversation and it gets so it gets so ugly in our politics and I hope 
that there's room in this election cycle for people to have some of these honest conversations. I know, Kristen, your time is short. And so I want to be um, careful of that because we, we really could talk about this the whole day. But, but so for DeSantis, the other thing that I see Democrats very much fear with what he's challenged with some of the, you know, black studies in, uh, in Florida when he was a teacher very briefly after Yale. There's this story that's out there that Trump has even like stood up these weird stories. But there's one story about him saying that the uh, Civil War was a fight over economics and not slavery. Is there a reason Democrats have to fear that Ron DeSantis doesn't believe in an equal opportunity for every American? I, I think that that is what the Democrats, I think if the, the Democrats fear anything, it's that Ron DeSantis is the one that is going to beat Joe Biden in 2024. That's what they have to fear because they know they have a candidate that is so weak and is going to run a basement 2.0 campaign that they are afraid that they're actually going to have to go against someone who they can win. Donald Trump can't beat Joe Biden. He can't. And they are nervous seeing that Ron DeSantis is giving Donald Trump a run for his money and is going to win the nomination and then beat Donald Trump. That is what they're scared of. But in terms of that, that's why they use arguments like that. That is why they're these hyperbolic, you know, we have to be afraid of of equal opportunities. I mean, Ron DeSantis would not have won the state of Florida by the margin he did and the areas he did, because what, what the left likes to do is pin us into these arguments, you know, pitting, you know, black and white against each other. At the end of the day, a utility bill and a building a bridge and good education should not be white or black. We need to make sure that that all demographics have, all Americans uh, should have opportunity, which is what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida. And if you're looking and and trying to say, well, we need to be afraid of how he would approach that. Just look at his record in Florida and notice that right now, I believe it's the number one. Um, state in the country for education in terms of graduation rates. I mean, that's that's across the board. That's not just white graduation rates or Hispanic or black. That's across the board. And pigeonhole us into an argument over race is a cynical way of looking at it. Because the way, if you look at Governor Ron DeSantis's record, he has worked to improve the economy, the education, and the, and the um, cost of living in Florida for all Floridians. If not, Miami-Dade wouldn't have voted for him. I mean, it just wouldn't. It's not, you know, I, I don't know the demographic breakout, but I, I can tell you right now that, um, you know, his, his support, um, he won a record number of Hispanics, of African-Americans of, uh, across the board, and people don't usually vote against their best interests. And so if, if you are still going with that cynical argument, just look at, at how he has governed and who supported him because of it. Well, I don't even know that it's a cynical argument. I think there are people who really, truly, like, they want to know, like, you know, what is in his heart? And I guess we're going to see it on the campaign trail. Uh, um, I mean, the on the flip it on the other side. I mean, do I need to be worried that because, you know, I mean, it's just that this, this argument is a cynical argument. You have to look at what you are doing to better the lives of individuals and not focus on, you know, and that includes, I mean, that is a equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. So that's the difference. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think both sides, like there are good intentioned people on both sides who just, um, you know, have been at the forefront of, um, fighting for equal opportunity and equal access. And if we can get there, 
shoot fire, I think we'd all be better for it. So um, I really appreciate it, Kristen. I appreciate you shedding some light on DeSantis. There are a bunch of young people out there who are like big DeSantis fans. So it'll be interesting to see if they all come off the sidelines and then how how it is he's going to stand up against Trump is going to be something to watch. Well, I think he's going to provide an optimistic vision for the future. And that is hard to ignore and is why so many people, especially young people, are getting behind him. It's going to be interesting to watch. I'm really grateful to Kristen Davidson from the ProDeSantis PAC for joining me. Alex Eisenstadt from Politico has been covering Governor DeSantis. So I wanted to dig into his legislative record and what he's done in Florida as he uses that to build his bid for the presidency. He's been talking about a lot of different culture war issues, such as his fight with Disney. But but COVID is definitely something that I think you're likely to see him talk about. Uh, and you're likely to see him attack Trump for not being open enough uh, in terms of maybe some of the early shutdowns that Trump supported early on during the very early days of, of the pandemic. And so the, but the question is, is that the pandemic, as, as crazy as it sounds, was three years ago. And to what extent are uh, voters looking now at other issues? And so what you see DeSantis try to do is really carve out this anti, what he describes as this anti-woke agenda, right, which was building off of what you saw him do in Florida by keeping things, as you said, for the most part, open during COVID, and now branching out to other topics. And you're seeing him uh, talk a lot about uh, transgender issues. You're seeing him talk a lot about uh, his fight with Disney um, and taking steps to curb Disney's uh, power. And so those are things that um, uh, you're really sort of going to see DeSantis probably run on. This guy who's this culture warrior who, uh, in his words, doesn't really back down in the face of a fight. It's so interesting to me that so many are choosing to take on these issues. One, you know, the prevalence of, you know, those who are transgender is very small. The um, Disney fight, that one was in the aftermath of a don't say gay bill, um, which he, you know, says it didn't say don't say gay, but essentially it did. And it was telling, you know, uh, I guess, the schools, how to teach. He has gotten criticized for even banning books or curriculum. Like, how much is it his choice and what is he doing? Well, look, to to, to some extent, you look at the Disney, he's choosing to go out there and highlight these issues. He's having press conferences. He's the one who's putting it out there on social media. And so he is definitely presenting himself and presenting his public, public image as a guy who is fighting what he describes as as woke culture. And so those are things that, um, you know, that is the image that he is looking to create. And so, you know, to some extent, maybe these were issues that are taken up by other people, but he has definitely chosen to highlight them as he proceeds towards a likely presidential run. It was interesting looking at his race for governor because he did seem to expand his reach in um, minority communities and really every community in Florida. How do you think he did that? Well, you know, he, he got he got a lot of credit for uh, for how he handled COVID. That was something that he got a lot of credit for. Um, and, y- you know, he, he was running against a fairly uh, not not a strong opponent in Charlie Crist. And he raised a lot of money. And those were all True. things that Charlie Crest is kind those, of a dud. Those, right. I mean, he, he ran against. 
it's one guy who ended up, you know, in a drug-induced situation in a hotel room, and then the next guy who was a Republican, he's, that's true, he's gotten pretty lucky in that. Oh, gosh. But but he's definitely going to have what is going to be a harder race, almost certainly this time around. Running against Donald Trump is much harder than running against Charlie Crist, right? Uh, Trump has a really strong hold on on the party. Um, And so they're on on the Republican Party. And so DeSantis did do a very good job. He won uh, Florida by a a lot. He won re-election by a lot. He raised a lot of money and he became sort of a darling of the right uh, in doing so. And all those things helped him uh, win re-election. Well, he has. He's taken a state that's pretty diverse and uh, done kind of what Democrats have done in California and won by a 20 percent margin. Um, So on the Florida economic growth, uh, unemployment is now at 2.6%. The unemployment has been lower than the national rate since November 2020. He does claim credit for the labor force growing um, by 250,000 people. It was uh, faster than the national labor growth. The Florida employers have added jobs for 32 consecutive months uh, since May 2020. Um, On the fiscal side of the equation, does he have a story that will resonate? Yeah, I mean, look, he's definitely going to try to tell that story. He is going to try to tell And he's been going around the country talking about this, what he describes as the Florida blueprint. This is how he has been going across the country. And so, you know, he launched a book tour earlier this this year. You've been talking about the book a little bit in our conversation. And he is what he has done is he has gone around the country and talked about what he has done in the state. Uh, And that's something that you're definitely likely to see him do uh, as he gets ready to run to talk about the fiscal issues in the state, to talk about what he sees as the state's successes. It's going to be interesting. I mean, I initially, when the book launched, I saw, I think it's like 100,000 people or whatever, snapped it up right away. And it was still less than Obama, but it was pretty significant. And he was, he's selling out crowds. Um, there's, you know, there's an enthusiasm behind him. But what is he like to cover? How does he actually engage with the people who are following him? Because I remember early Iowa, you know, with we rolled out President Obama and he very similarly had the book, had, you know, this following because of his DNC speech that he delivered. And yet in Iowa, we had people who came to the events and they would essentially say, oh, he's just a celebrity. Like, I'm not that interested. I guess now we've had a celebrity president, but but what is what is DeSantis like? You know, it, it's interesting. It, it, as a political science experiment, DeSantis is, is sort of making a bet here, right? He's saying he's focused, at least so far, um, in terms of the interviews and the access he's given, um, it is disproportionately to conservative media. Places like Fox News, you're seeing other conservative social media influencers getting access to the governor. and in a lot of ways like that, that really worked for him in Florida when he was running for re-election, right? He he kind of gave a bit of the cold shoulder to the mainstream media. He became known for his combative press conferences with the mainstream media. His aides took on the mainstream media and he paid a lot of attention to, to the conservative press. And it's going to be interesting to see if he follows that template again, going into running for president, because running for president is different than running for governor of a single state. What's interesting is, and you contrast this with President Trump, which is that 
during his White House years, Trump really spent a lot of time attacking the mainstream media, favoring conservative press. What you're seeing Trump now do, though, as he runs in 2024 in his current campaign, is he's actually spending a lot of time courting and cultivating relationships with mainstream reporters. And you see him doing this in a couple of different ways. One is that he's put he's invited reporters onto his plane and reporters are spending time on his plane, interviewing him, talking with him on his way to campaign events. And it's an interesting contrast you're seeing, which is that Trump is spending a lot of time courting the mainstream press and DeSantis is still spending a lot of time focused on the conservative press. The question is, is does that change once DeSantis launch, actually uh, launches his campaign and becomes a candidate? Well, that's a really good point because we actually, when I look back at how we made inroads, and it was a different media environment slightly, but um, we did local, local press interviews with the local reporter in every single community in Iowa. Has how has he been? I think you know, I've seen like you've seen. I mean, he even did a bill signing with Fox News, which is a little unusual for a governor and really makes me uncomfortable because I believe strongly in freedom of the press and that you know, any candidate, any politician, anyone in power should be held accountable. Um, has he engaged with local, local reporters in Florida or anywhere on the trail so far? To, to, to a large extent, the answer to that question has been no. He is engaged with conservative press. You have seen him give interviews to conservative reporters such as Benny Johnson. Um, he's very accessible when it comes to Fox News. Fox News. He gave an interview to Piers Morgan. Which was so weird, by the way. Like I watched the Piers Morgan and I was like, why Piers Morgan of all people? I was, And it was like he asked him about putting fingers and then putting fingers became a commercial. It's just... But, but- But this is what's going to be really interesting, right, which is that does this approach work? Because for a long time, and you know this as well as anyone, for a long time, we presidential candidates have followed a template, which is you pay, you talk to the local reporters in Iowa and New Hampshire, you talk to the mainstream reporters, whether it's from the New York Times, the Washington Post, or my organization, Politico, you uh, cultivate them, you talk to them, you allow them in, you, John McCain brought reporters onto his bus, right? We have uh, there is a template for how to run for president and how to deal with the press, right? And DeSantis is basically saying, we can do things my own way. And at least so far, what he's been doing is he has been focusing on the conservative press. And so it's going to be a fascinating political science experiment to see if his approach, in fact, works. Maybe it will work. Maybe it won't work. I do think he has an economic story to tell. I do think like in some things that he took on, for example, he went after uh, teacher credentialing, which is right now a very long process in which after you get a degree, you still need a two-year sometimes teacher credential, which can cost uh, potential teachers a lot of money, a lot of time, and we need people in the classrooms right away. So he did change it in Florida to try to get, you know, former uh, military veterans um, in the classroom much more quickly, uh, family members of veterans in the classroom more quickly. Um, you know, those kinds of things, I think, they're they're interesting to me. And I think he has a story to tell, but... Um, Gosh, if he's relying on the same press that the former president and every other candidate are relying on, it's going to be limited in terms of getting that audience, you know, to grow for a general election. I would think you would think, right? And 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 this is the thing, which is that so much about 
running for president is about public image and presentation. And how do you convey your record? How do you convey what you want to do for the country? And, you know, you can do that if you're giving an interview to Fox News or if you're giving an interview to a conservative outlet. That can be, you know, that that's part of that, that is part of running for president in a Republican primary. You need to pay attention to those, but uh, to those outlets. But the question also becomes: If you're a voter in Iowa, if you're a voter in New Hampshire, if you're in South Carolina and North or Nevada, are you looking for a little bit more? And you know, if you're running for president, a lot of times you're going to have to face tough questions for people in audiences and from people in the press. I mean, he recently took the opportunity to go overseas, which honestly, having done foreign trips, he chose some difficult protocol locations. He went to Japan, um, he went to Israel, and he went to the United Kingdom, which are actually like protocol heavy and you can step in it really easily. He didn't so much step in it. He kind of, you know, responded to one question uh, that they asked him about, you know, being a candidate. And he said, I'm not a candidate yet. And, you know, if that's the worst that happens, pretty good. But he gets home and it's weird because people are now trying to figure out who paid for this trip. The thought was it was Enterprise Florida, which is like a uh, you know, organization that has some private funding, but Enterprise Florida won't comment on the cost. And then in the Florida legislature, as I understand, they're trying to seal those records of like that cost. And that's actually like, if I were Nikki Haley, that is something I would absolutely grasp onto because Nikki Haley is way more of a transparency in finances kind of a person. That's like how she uh, started her campaign was, you know, when she was running in South Carolina, she was running to say, if you're going to give yourself a pay increase, you need to do that on the record. Um, but DeSantis, it's it's weird because this trip, again, like if he did it for the state of Florida, which I think he did, then he should tell people that he did it for the state of Florida and what he got for the state of Florida. Right. Yeah. And, and but this sort of goes to the point that we were just talking about, which is that he's very much in, in favor of controlling his own narrative. Uh, in, in terms of in terms of how information gets disseminated, and so he doesn't necessarily believe that that's information that he should have to give up unless he absolutely has to give that information up, right? And so that's something that he might get asked about uh, in an interview with a mainstream press publication, and maybe he doesn't want to answer that question. And so again, we go back to that point, right? Which is. If you're running for president, you got to open up to some extent, right? But he's trying to run for president in a bit of a different way, and it's going to be fascinating to see if this works. And it's going to be fascinating to see if people on the trail ask him that question about who funded this. Is it a donor? Is it some other organization? Is he funding it out of his remaining campaign dollars in his campaign account? These are all questions that people are going to ask, and potentially he may be questioned about this at some point. You mentioned something that's interesting. He clearly has a media strategy. He's married to a former media personality. Casey DeSantis had her own show in Florida that was very popular. Do you know Casey? Did you meet her? You know, no, I don't. I've not had any interactions with her, but I'll tell you that she is, by all accounts, his top advisor, his closest advisor. She has a huge amount of influence on his political rise, how he presents himself. And by all accounts, in, in, in a lot of respects, you're going to see her, him, her probably play a huge role in terms of his 
presidential campaign. And, and, and one thing to know about Casey DeSantis, and you're sort of starting to see this in terms of some of the videos that DeSantis is putting out on social media and also his allied super PAC is you're almost starting to see them being created as almost a Kennedy-esque uh, couple. You're seeing some hints of, of, of Camelot in there. And it's going to be interesting to see how uh, what role she plays in this campaign um, in terms of uh, how do they present themselves as a couple as they move forward in this race. Morgan Ortegas and I were both saying she should run. <laughs> I mean, she is. She's an interesting personality. And she, even during his campaign, was like buzzing around on little, like, uh, you know, moped or something, like going door to door and trying to, you know, knock on as many doors and sell her husband. I think she's going to be interesting. But, um, but so far, it seems like on the trail, she's been there and not speaking. That's right. I mean, she 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 is someone who um, is definitely going to be playing a role. I mean, look, you do see her when he's speaking at events. She is definitely at his side, right? I mean, you're definitely she's not hiding from the the, the public, but he is definitely the one who's out there. It's going to be interesting to see what she does going forward in this campaign. Um, but it, it is definitely interesting that you have uh, a spouse. As his top advisor, are there complications in that? Um, that's not typical, right? I mean, you definitely have had spouses be important advisors to candidates. You know, when I think about uh, the Obamas, Mrs. Obama was really critical to kind of introducing who uh, Barack Obama was. Um, the, you know, Clintons, uh, I don't even have the information to try to delve into that marriage, which is a <laughs> by all outside accounts, probably a little unusual, but they certainly seem to have a relationship in which they relied on each other's advice. So, you know, to me, it doesn't surprise me so much that Casey is an advisor, but more like, when's she going to get out there? What's her strategy? And that's my biggest question is, I see the popularity. I see even like some remnants of he takes a stand. He can be strong. Like we, when we ran, when President Obama ran, he had that he had stood against the Iraq war, which was something that was really important. And it had been years ago, but we used that. He has that he kept the state open during the pandemic, which while it's three years ago, those of us who had children who were, you know, put to school in Zoom for multiple years, we'll see the effects for years. So he has those elements, but I don't understand at all his strategy. One, like, <laughs> why are you, you know, picking such a direct fight with Disney right now? <laughs> I mean, that like to me, it's like, if you're going to take on corporate establishments, definitely you need to take on more than just one. Um, or you're going to look like you're, you know, just choosing sides. And then like on the state strategy, he's going to Iowa, he's going to New Hampshire, but is he actually putting boots on the ground there? When will he put boots on the ground there? It's Iowa, New Hampshire, it's South Carolina, it's all these states, and then you got to have a convention strategy. There's so much you have to do, right? Trump has already gotten started on that, and he has advisors working for him who've done this a lot. And you've already started to see them outmaneuver DeSantis when it comes to winning endorsements, right? Trump, the last few weeks, has gotten a lot of his congressional endorsements from Florida. And that's kind of an embarrassment to DeSantis, given that DeSantis is governor of that state.
I totally hear the concern on that. I always just remember that Dick Durbin was like our only friend in the Senate for like the longest time with President Obama. It was like nobody else gave us the time of day. It was all for Hillary and they were all like going across the state. So I mean, knowing so many Republicans, they don't want Trump. They want a different candidate. But you hit on something really important, which is that Trump has been organizing for a long time. So how does that actually happen? Do any of the congressional leaders give you any or anyone that you're covering that are like big Republicans names tell you what they're saying behind closed doors, which is that they don't want Trump? Or do they just not say that? There, so so here, here's what I would say. Was there's definitely a substantial portion of the party um, potentially at least 40%, um, if not higher on some surveys, of people who want someone other than Trump. The problem is, is that this is what happened in 2016. There were also a lot of people back then who didn't want Trump to be the nominee. And so they had a really hard time getting behind one candidate, uniting behind that candidate. And then you had all those candidates who were not Trump attacking one another. You're starting to see that happen again. The exact same dynamic is starting to play out in 2016. This is something you hear a lot of people talk about. So, for example, whether Nikki Haley has been attacking Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy has been attacking Ron DeSantis. You see sort of this firing squad developing with the non-Trump candidates all competing with one another, which is then creating a splintered field and giving Trump a huge advantage to build himself up and to establish more and more support while his rivals are all splintering and dividing votes and attacking one they're going to have to take on Trump. I mean, they want to, so they need to, but... Well, the, the question is, how do you take on Trump without antagonizing and alienating his supporters? And this is the box that DeSantis finds himself in, right? Which is that DeSantis wants to become the nominee, and he does that by getting the people who don't want Trump, um, but also in uniting them at a time when he's got all these other people he's running against who are competing in the same for the same pool of support. But then he's got to figure out a way to get some people who are Trump supporters. And how do you attack Trump without alienating those those staunch Trump supporters? He clearly hasn't figured it out yet, because even with the indictment, the initial response he had was, well, I you know, don't know what it's like to pay a porn star, which is true. By all accounts, he's happily married to Casey DeSantis and has never strayed. So, um, but then that obviously wasn't enough. So he said, you know, I'm going to, uh, I would never extradite the former president. Well, the former president is going to take your protection. Like, why are you defending him right now? Like, this is silly. And uh, hopefully they have some really smart minds (laughs) coming up with how they're going to take him on. But it is I think you're right. It's probably going to end up being Casey DeSantis. So it's one, like a curious thing to me. Who's she lit- listening to? Adam Laxalt is in this circle of people too, right? Adam Laxalt is a former Nevada Senate candidate. Uh, he's was longtime friends with, with DeSantis um, and is now working for that pro-DeSantis super PAC. And so he's someone who has DeSantis's ear and he's part of that inner, inner circle. Well, and, uh, it's interesting because Laxalt, you know, his mom had gotten pregnant with her dad's senior aide who had a family and children. Uh, she had an out of wedlock pregnancy and ended up having Adam Laxalt 
um, raising him. And then he went back into the state and, of course, didn't end up winning this time, but came awfully close. And Laxalt, you know, had been the one who had uh, beat Harry Reid before Harry Reid had the real machine. So, you know, (laughs) as like, I guess I call myself like a normal person from Galesburg, Illinois. It's just so bizarre to me how incestuous <laughs> this stuff is, and it goes back like decades. But DeSantis, politics is a club. It is. It's a club. But but DeSantis isn't actually part. He wasn't born into that club. I mean, his dad was like a fraternity member at his college, and but his mom was like a nurse, right? You know, he definitely, and you're you're definitely seeing him talking about sort of his regular upbringing, right? You're saying there was an ad that came out of the Superpacted a couple weeks ago calling him uh, the grandson of a steel worker. He's trying to play to these this idea that that he had he comes from sort of the normal people uh, roots, and he's trying to appeal to uh, normal people, and that's something that you definitely see as as emerging as part of this bio that his allies are starting to sort of uh, create for him. Well, I hope he figures it out just because I do actually think that both of our parties need new leadership. <laughs> We're not going to see it on the Democratic side. And, you know, I've worked with Joe Biden a long time. I guess we're going to run him as Queen, you know, <laughs> like Queen Elizabeth. We're going to keep him going for another four years. But I think that the Republicans have an opportunity to flip the script and move forward. Thank you to Alex and to Kristen. I really appreciate all of you who stuck around. Our motto for the Iowa campaign for President Obama was respect, empower, include. And gosh, I think we could get back to that in politics. That is exactly what I want to do on Press Advance. And I'd love to have the audience involved. So if you're listening to this, please find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Send me what you think and let me know if I should read it on the podcast. Stay tuned to Press Advance because we're going to drop more. We've got two South Carolinians who have entered the field and they bring fresh perspectives on what the American dream is and what the future of the GOP could be. So we're going to do deep dives on Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. We are also going to flip the script and listen to some of the political speeches as read by a different political voice. I've always been curious how much of bias enters our equation when we listen to these political speeches. So please follow us, rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.